Hey, welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, June 19th, 2023. This week and next week, I'm joined by Dr. Tamar Goldwasser, our resident expert in prenatal genetics to talk about carrier screening. Now, Tamar and I podcasted about the basics of carrier screening a few years ago, so you can definitely check that one out. But now we're going to the next level. Today, we're going to talk about the case for universal expanded carrier screening. And next week, we're going to talk about some really fascinating situations with carrier screening where the mother who's getting screened might actually learn something about her own health and future health from carrier screening, which is not the reason the carrier screening is done. Really interesting stuff. Carrier screening is a rapidly expanding field, and Tamar is one of the national leaders in this process, truly national leader. And we are very lucky to have her on our team and on the podcast. Okay, reminder for all of you listening on Apple or Spotify, we would really appreciate it if you could rate this podcast, preferably with five stars. Please do leave comments. I read them all. I really appreciate them. Also, reminder, please email us any questions you might have for our mailbag. The more questions we get, the more mailbag podcasts we're going to do. To send those in, you can email them to hw at healthfulwoman.com. Or you can also go to our website, www.healthfulwoman.com, and just click on the link that says, send us your questions. All right, thanks for listening. See y'all next week. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Dr. Tamar Goldwasser. Tamar, welcome back to the podcast. How you doing? Thanks. I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we're, we're here to talk about the wonderful world of genetics, the WWG, the best, the best... <laughs> <laughs> the best world there is. And we're, we're doing an update on carrier screening or carrier screening phase two or carrier screening advanced level course. We did a podcast three years ago now in July of 2020 on sort of the basics of carrier screening. It wasn't a basic podcast. We went pretty deep into it, but sort of like an introduction to it. And so our listeners can obviously refer back, but we got more to talk about. Carrier screening is is really front and center now. Yes. Absolutely. Beautiful. My so, favorite topic. <laughs> you know, it it really is fascinating because there's so much, there's like the science behind it and the medicine behind it and sort of like the practical nature of it, but there's so much else. There's sort of, you know, there's there's cost, there's different labs, there's geographic variability, there's all this confusion and disagreement of what to do with, you know, race and ethnicity and it really gets, it gets confusing with carrier screening. It seems like a very simple concept, but it gets really confusing out there. And, and I know that it's so different all over the country. Yeah, it's, that's one of the craziest things is that depending on where you get your care, you'll get offered a lot of carrier screening or no carrier screening or somewhere in between. Yeah, it's, it's definitely disparate at this point. And I know that you were part of, I guess, a, a committee or a group or something, a consortium to address this on a national level. So talk about that a little and uh, impress all our listeners with how cool you are and famous. 
Okay. Yes. So my pleasure. So in 2021, I was part of a group and we put out a new practice resource titled Screening for Autosomal Recessive and X-Linked Conditions for the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. I'm going to stop you right there. Tell me about this group. How'd you get, how'd you get selected to be in this group? This, this, this super, this super high powered group. So I'm a member of the American College of Medical Genetics because I'm a board certified medical geneticist and I've stayed involved. That's how I keep connected and learn what's new in genetics. And I've always been part of different, there's a group called the practice guideline group, and I've been involved in several of them. And this was the most recent one. Cool. I think that they asked me to do it because, you know, I represent the OB side of genetics, whereas some other people do genetics from the pediatric side or from the lab side. So I spend all day with the OB department or OB patients. And so it brings a different piece to the puzzle. Okay. So you, so you're part of this, you know, elite squad of medical geneticists, like the A-team of medical geneticists <laughs> brought in and you guys are sitting around a table and w- what is the problem you're trying to solve while you're sitting around talking about this? All right. So the problem is that the old model of carrier screening had some issues. So it used to be, and it probably still is in a lot of places, that depending on your reported ethnicity or reported background, you were offered different tests. And this was done initially because genetic testing in general was very, very expensive. And so public health and doctors wanted to be mindful of the cost and not recommend expensive tests in groups of patients who are very unlikely to need the test or to have a positive result. But a lot has changed. So first of all, genetic testing has become much more efficient. The technology has advanced tremendously in the past 10 years, and it's also become much, much more economical. And so testing is not as expensive as it was. Instead of thousands of dollars, it's down to just a few hundred dollars. And the other thing that changed is that Actually, we've learned through some of the direct-to-consumer testing genetic labs like 23andMe and Ancestry, a person's self-reported ethnicity is notoriously flawed and wrong. And people are learning, hey, I have this in my background or I have 20% of this ethnic group or you know, country of origin in my background. And this is because over the past several decades, there's been a lot of population mixing or blending. So it's a beautiful thing in this country, but people don't live in their silos the way we used to think of it. And so for those reasons, we said only offering genetic testing to some patients was not fair or equitable. You know, it wasn't providing good care to all of our patients. And it was also just scientifically flawed because we know actually people may not know their true ethnicity or their ethnic background. And so you may be missing genetic carriers because you ruled it out from the beginning. Right. So just to sort of state it again, you know, just to clarify, because this is a really important point. We were training sort of, and it's still, again, it exists in many, if not most parts of the country. They would say, okay, every pregnant person who, you know, who were testing, checking for genetics, we're going to check for this one condition. And if you're, let's say, black, we'll check for these extra two conditions. If you're Mediterranean, we'll check for these conditions. If you're Ashkenazi Jewish, we'll check for these conditions. If you're Asian, we'll check for these. And, you know, sort of like go through it and say, all right, what are you, right? And okay, right. so I so I say, all right, I'm Ashkenazi Jewish. Great. 
but I don't know. Like, that's just what I am. That's how I identify. That's how I think I am. And maybe it's true. Maybe it's not true. But for all I know, my great grandmother was Mediterranean or Asian or whoever. And so this is really an issue, like you said, not just on the sense of like, you know, what we talk about, like being equity, like someone's not getting tested for things and we're sort of like not doing right by them. But also this idea that you can sort of determine what someone's at risk for by asking them, hey, where are you from? Or, you know, what's your ethnicity? And like, that doesn't like someone says, like, I'm black. Like, okay, well, you could be from like 100 different places, right? And you have a crazy different ancestry. That doesn't mean much. I say I'm Jewish. What does that mean? Like, I got converted. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. People have no idea. Right. People really, really have no idea. And and it ended up being, you know, it's even hard when you're trying to do research. I'm sure you've encountered this. You usually have to try and define the demographics of your patients. And sometimes it's hard to decide what category to put someone into because of that exact problem. Yeah. So so that so that was the problem. And what solution did you come up with? Okay. So there was actually a paper that was a joint statement that was put out by ACOG and the, which is the American College of OBGYN and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine and also the Genetic Counseling Society a few years ago that basically offered a suggestion of screening for any condition with a carrier frequency of greater than one in a hundred. So that would mean that if you sample a hundred people in the United States, one is supposed to be a carrier or is expected to be a carrier. And that was the beginning of how we approached this. So we had a team of nine of us and what we decided to do was comb something called ClinGen, which is a database of all the known genes and look for any gene that is known to have a carrier frequency of one in 200 or greater in any population in the United States that has reasonable representation. So any gene or gene that's supposed, that we know to be mutated or you know an issue with a specific gene with a frequency of anything more than one in 200. And it doesn't have to represent the entire United States, but any population that represents more than 1% of the United States, like Ashkenazi Jews or Puerto Rico, for instance, those groups were also taken into account. And so with that, we devised a list of 113 genes that we recommend every single patient to be screened for when they're preparing for a pregnancy. And so the list was put out and we understood it was going to take time for things to pick up, but slowly labs have adopted and are using that list to create a carrier screening panel that will be offered. And at least they could say here, we're this list or this group of genes, you can offer it to your patient and you'll be covering all of the conditions recommended by the American College of Medical Genetics. And then, so just to be clear, until this, or if people aren't doing this, you may be tested for zero conditions, one condition, five conditions, 12 conditions, like those are the numbers you're talking about. And you're saying that you guys recommended that every person who gets screened, every person should be screened and that panel should have at least these 113 conditions because they're prevalent enough that no matter what your ancestry, if you're sitting in the United States, you're going to pick up something that's, you know, not crazy, crazy, crazy rare, but, you know, prevalent enough that it's reasonable to be screened for it. And that every lab that has a panel should include at least 
these 113 conditions. Exactly. Sorry, one more thing. So it was not, we chose the genes not just by the prevalence, like the carrier frequency, but also by severity. So the genes that were selected were also, these genes should be very strongly correlated with disease. It shouldn't be confusing. And it should also be very strongly correlated with things that are considered to be, you know, relatively more, severe or, you know, significant in terms of the impact on a person's life. Right. I mean, we're, we're not, we're not screening if this kid's going to be a lefty or righty. We're not screening exactly. if this is going to be, you know, five, seven or five, 10. We're, we're screening for, you know, is this kid going to have a disease? And again, the, the tenant is that if, if the mother's a carrier and the father's a carrier, then each child has a 25% chance. There's some exceptions based on the exact gene, but basically that's the autosomal recessive model. So the sort of what happens is Typically, one person, you know, the the mother gets screened first and anything she screens positive for, they screen the father and to make sure that that's, you know, that they're a match, so to speak. There's other sort of ways to do it, but that's the most common. Now, essentially, what you're saying before is that doing this, the cost is really not different than having two, five or 12 tested, meaning when you, whatever the cost is to the insurance company or to if someone's paying out of pocket or their co-payments or whatever it might be is really not markedly different. Right. Yeah. Because what happens is the way that they've they do carrier screening in a lab now is that they're using something called next generation sequencing for the most part. And whether they report 14 genes or 10 genes or a hundred genes, it's usually already data that is available from their testing procedure. It's just a matter of how many things they're going to report on. So yeah, the cost is actually not different. Yeah. And I think that's something, yeah, it's a massive difference. And I remember, you know, when I was getting screened 150 years ago, you know, I get married and there's like five genes of like, yeah, it'll be $1,800. Like what? You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> right, say what? Like, oh my God. And so you understand why like, listen, we got to really limit this. Like we cannot have, like, first of all, it's just not tenable. You can't get everyone to, you know, like I, you know, I was a med student, they cut me a deal, but like it was, I don't think I wasn't. Yeah, I was a med student. So it's just really, it's just such a difference. And so when people are thinking, is it, is this like wasteful? It's really the same cost. And we'll talk about at the end of the podcast, like some potential, I wouldn't call it a downside because I think it's important, but some sort of consequences of knowing more about your genetic makeup than not knowing, but it's not an issue of cost. It's not an issue of availability. Like you can get these tests pretty much anywhere in the country. There's labs. You can, you can go online and like have this done. It's not complicated logistically to have your, your carrier screen done. It just has to be something that your doctor or midwife offers. That's really it. It's, yeah. it's not particularly complex. And yeah, yeah, that's a big message. It's a huge message. I think it's a huge message for doctors too. I think that we all grew up and trained and had experience with genetic testing being so expensive and cost prohibitive that we were trained to be selective about when to use it. But the message is the cost is much, much lower than you remember. And it's recommended for every single patient. Yeah. I mean, it's just, listen, for most couples, it doesn't matter, meaning most couples, when they go through this testing, are going to find out that as a couple, they're compatible, meaning one may carry something or likely will carry something and one will likely carry something else, but it's not the same thing, then it's fine. And so had they never done it, they'd get away with it. But the problem is if you happen to be in that one or two or three or whatever percent of couples 
who it is an issue. There is no way to know about this other than doing screening or having a baby that's sick. That's it. Right. Absolutely. Because <laughs> these things, they don't, pop, yeah, they don't pop up. Yeah, they yeah. don't pop up in your family history because you have to actually procreate with someone who's also a carrier. So if, if like if I'm a carrier of Tay-Sachs, I very likely will not have anybody that I know about in my family who ever had Tay-Sachs. The only way I'm going to find out is if I get screened or if I have a baby with Tay-Sachs. That's it. And that's really not like that's best avoided. Uh, you know, it's really something that you want to screen for yeah. in advance because, again, there's just no other way to find out. And since you know, you get away with it 97, 98% of the time. You don't hear these stories that often of couples who weren't screened and they have a baby, but we do hear these stories. I know people who this has happened to, like I know patients who this has happened to, it absolutely does happen. So it's an important message that if you are thinking of having kids or you are in early pregnancy, you should ask your OB, your midwife, your family practice doctor, whoever you're seeing, have I been screened? Have I done carrier screening? Absolutely. And if not, yeah, and let's in the do IVF it. center too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you're preparing for IVF and you're creating embryos and you plan on going that far to try and have a healthy child, then carrier screening has to be done and definitely ask for it. Yeah. I mean IVF IVF is critical because if you're doing if you're already doing IVF, like the the only solution right? If you're both carriers other than splitting up, right? The only solution is you, you know, to avoid a possible situation is you do IVF and you can test the embryos if the embryos have the condition and only put in the embryos that don't have the condition. Now, if you don't need IVF and you weren't planning IVF, that's a big shift from getting pregnant on your own. Yeah. But if you're already doing IVF, it's, it's almost crazy not to do carrier screening because why wouldn't you want to know this in advance? You can actually do something about it. You're already doing the IVF. Yeah, it is crazy to do IVF without carrier screening. Um, you know, you reminded me that another thing is usually you would think, okay, I did it once and I'm finished and nothing's going to change because when you do carrier screening, you're testing your DNA that you inherited from your mother and father when you were born. However, if you did carrier screening more than a few years ago, you might not have had adequate carrier screening given the new guidelines of the 113 conditions and beyond. And so I think it's also worth readdressing and, you know, with each pregnancy, at least with each planning of a new pregnancy and with each new reproductive partner. So if you've done it in the past with another partner, don't remember exactly how it worked, but it all worked out. And now you're having a new reproductive partner. It's worth taking another look at carrier screening. Yeah. And also just, just to be clear that the guidelines you came out with, uh, which have 113 conditions, that's the floor, meaning that you're saying that's the quote unquote bare minimum yeah. that should be tested, but yep. there are panels currently that test over 500 conditions. I mean, there's a lot more than 113 that are out yes. there. And so- my first question is, why is there so much variation? And my second question is, how did you guys choose to only have 113 and not say you should test as many as are currently available? So that goes back to our selection process. So, right. So there's, we called this 113, we called it tier three or level three screening. And then we recognized that there will always be offerings, including more genes. So we called anything beyond that as tier four. And we knew that that was a moving target because every genetic testing lab does offer larger panels with more genes, hundreds, even thousands of genes. 
and we don't necessarily know their selection criteria. And one thing we were really careful about was the what we call genotype-phenotype correlation. How tightly linked is this gene to this disease? And like basically, once you get the result, are you able to counsel a family and say, yeah, if your child inherits these, this condition from both of you, they will have X disease and it will look like this. There are some genes that are newly out there and are less well understood. And so if you get a result, it's really hard to counsel the family and say, this is what the outcome is going to be. It's sometimes there are genes out there where it's like you could have loose associations with different you know, medical issues, but we don't actually know the true prevalence and we don't know how many unaffected people have mutations also. So it, we try to stick to genes that have the ability to provide good counseling to and thought to be useful. And right. we also recognize the fact that as more knowledge is accumulated and science progresses, this list has to be updated. It's not meant to be static. And we plan to reconvene periodically to, you know, look at it again and reassess. Right. So like, and you asked about the different labs. So different labs offer different panels of genes. And when we talk about genes, let's just say humans have more than 20,000 genes, right? So when we talk about carrier screening, it's not at all fully comprehensive of every gene that can lead to disease. It's very specific. We want to look at things that are not really designed to diagnose the parents who we're testing. So we're not looking at dominant conditions, which we could explain, but we're really just looking at things that are supposed to be more likely to put your offspring at risk depending on either your partner or if it's X-linked depending on, on how those things go. So the different labs all offer a slightly different array and actually some of them vary very, very much so. And we in our practice had recently switched from one larger panel and you know we can discuss we ended up not using that lab anymore and now we're using another large panel at a different lab and the genes are not all the same. And it's definitely a logistical difficulty. Also, it's hard to keep track of from pregnancy to pregnancy and from lab to lab. Yeah, just to clarify a few things. So you mentioned tier three and tier four. So tier one would be sort of like just like one or two tests for everybody, like sort of like old, old school. And then tier two was sort of what we described before, which is you do one or two for everybody and then sprinkle in a couple extras based on their reported ethnicity. So what, and tier three is sort of what you guys recommended saying, don't do tier one anymore. Don't do tier two anymore. Everyone should be doing tier three or higher, which is again, this expanded panel of 113 and tier four is each lab, right? Each lab has the right to put whatever genes they want on their tests. It's not like regulated. They're commercial labs. They could do anything. But the point of this recommendation is like, Hey, all you labs out there that are doing this, whatever you do with your tier four you know, crazy expanded panels that are hundreds and hundreds of conditions, please make sure it includes these 113, at least. Yes. Got it. And so is, and so because of that, there probably are going to be someone who's going to produce a a test that only has 113, but most of them are going to have, all right, ours has 220 panel, 220 tests, but it does include the 113 or ours 508 and it includes the 113. Yeah. Which is great. It sort of, it gives some sort of standardization within a system that is inherently different from lab to lab. Like you can't get every lab to do it exactly the same. That's just not yeah. feasible yeah. and it's probably not lawful, but it's you can at least get them a recommendation that, hey, you know, like at least do this, 
right? Yeah, I mean, that actually, I didn't tell you, that was the other problem that we were setting out to solve. Like, basically, there was no uniform language. And when people said expanded carrier screening, that that phrase had no real definition. Like, there was no agreed upon list of conditions that were on that list or who should have expanded carrier screening. And so it was also a way to sort of get us on the same page in terms of language and say, okay, well, what, what type of carrier screening has been done and what is recommended? Yeah, I mean, in our own practice, I mean, just to give a, a flavor of sort of lo- the logistics that you mentioned. So we've always been offering, uh, recommending, you know, expanded screening to everyone. But like you said, there's no real definition of that. It's based on the lab we chose. So we were using a lab, we were originally using Test called inherit test from, which was at the time Genzyme, then became LabCorp, and it was like 117 or something conditions. This is years mm-hmm. and years ago. Then we switched to a lab called Semaphore, which is related to Mount Sinai, and their panel bumped up very quickly to 281 conditions. Then they added two more to make it 283 conditions. So now we're like, all right, everyone got screened for 281. Now we got to figure out, are we going to get them all screened for these next two? conditions that got added and that was its own thing. Then they went to 511 conditions. So we started screening everyone with that. And then we had the same problem. If someone had 281 or 283, do we have, do we check the balance? And then that lab shut down. (laughs) And so so we went, we went went back to LabCorp and then they have a panel that's 200 and something conditions. And then we're like, Oh God. And now they're having a one that's 500. It's the same thing logistically, but ultimately that's sort of, that's sort of the game. That's sort of how it is, you know, that yeah. each lab is a little different, but it is reassuring to know both as a doctor, but also as a patient. All right. Whatever, like whatever shenanigans are going on with all these different tests and which one's offered to me, which one I get, you know, which lab where I am, at least I'm getting these 113, which really a bunch of experts said, all y'all should be getting just to be sure. And I think that that's like the major lesson from this for our listeners, you know, again, if you are doing IVF, if you're thinking of having kids, because it's better to do this before you decide to have kids, but or if you're in early pregnancy, ask, am I getting expanded screening that is classified as tier three, which is at least these 113 conditions? If the doctor says, yeah, we use this lab and there's this 304 and it includes them, fine, you're good. Like, could you find one that's 500? Probably, but it may not be, you know, I, I don't know if it's worth looking all over the country to find the exact lab, but Make sure it's at least above this floor, which is what's recommended, because otherwise you're just missing out on an opportunity to find out potentially something you really, really need to know before you start procreating. Yeah, definitely. I love it. Amazing. It's a good message. Um, one thing, one condition on the list is actually really kind of tricky to test for, and I just want to give it a yeah. shout out. It's called hemophilia. <laughs> hey, hemophilia, um, here's your shout out. <laughs> so Welcome to the podcast, hemophilia. All right. <laughs> It's, it's a severe bleeding disorder where people can't form blood clots after just like minor trauma. And so that is recommended and labs are actually having a hard time including it in their panels because it requires a different type of lab test. And so if you have a family history of hemophilia, then you have to be sure to report it and doctors need to know to ask about it. Or, you know, if someone says that they're worried about hemophilia, talk to your lab, call them and see if they could test your patient for that as well. Right. Right. Awesome. What I think we're going to do, we're going to wrap up this podcast and then we're going to do another podcast on carrier screening, which is related to the results that you can get and how they may have implications for your own health 
and not for the babies. Again, as you said before, the intent of carrier screening is to find out for your children. However, there are some of the tests that have some implications for your own health. And number one, we're going to talk about some of those. And number two, on a more global level, why that warrants a standardized and sort of organized way of getting carrier screening where you can get the proper counseling if something like that comes up. So we're going to be back next week with Tamar to talk about the next level of carrier screening. Tamar, thank you. This is awesome. Really helpful stuff. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.